You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Our guest this hour is Dr. Sue Savage-Rumbaugh. She joins others we've interviewed in a continuing series on 21st Century Radio's commitment to trans-species welfare as part of human destiny, the compassion and regard for other species and their autonomy and rights. Dr. Rumbaugh is the senior scientist at the Great Ape Trust and is president of Bonobo Hope. She is a world-renowned scientist committed to the conservation, protection, welfare, and our trans-species understanding between humans and bonobos and other primates. Her lifelong commitment to living with, protecting, and publishing distinguished findings about the bonobos' culture, language, and habitat needs, among other things, has become a model for other sanctuary leaders and collaborative scientists worldwide interacting with other animal and primate species. Her organization, Bonobo Hope, does not compromise the psychological, social, ethical, or physical well-being of either the bonobos themselves or the humans who work and interact with them, far different from many environments in which primates find themselves. Bonobos, as Dr. Rumbaugh will share with us, are primate species, of which there are about 350 kinds, that, like humans, are capable of sentient self-reflection and self-determination, thereby able to fully evaluate their world and their relationships to it. Here to share her remarkable lifelong commitment to animal rights, our understanding of primate culture, and in particular methods of communication with the bonobos, is a woman Time Magazine has referred to as one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2011. Dr. Rumbaugh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to thank Gay Bradshaw of Carulos Foundation in Oregon for making the introduction and sharing with me your remarkable work. So if you don't mind, I'd like to go back a few years in your life. How did you get interested in the field in general? Well, we have to go back to about 1972, quite a, quite a long time. Uh, I was the oldest of seven children, and my father was always puzzling about why each child was a little bit different than the other. So I, I grew up with this question of how we become the way we are. And I went into psychology and was on my way to Harvard to study with B.F. Skinner. And I happened to stop off at the University of Oklahoma and visit a, a class that was being taught by Roger Faust. And he brought a chimpanzee up on the stage in this Psych 1 class and began to hold up a pair of keys and a book and glasses, and the chimpanzee made the signs for those things. And he said, come on out to the chimp farm, and you'll learn more about what we do. And I was just astonished. I couldn't believe there was a place like a chimp farm, and I couldn't believe there was a species that was acquiring language other than humans. And from my my preparation to go work with B.F. Skinner and my study of his book, Verbal Behavior, I knew that that language was the dividing line between humans and all other beings. It changed our consciousness. It changed us. It was responsible for our moral systems. It was responsible for our ability to construct societies. So I made my way to the chimp farm and never left. <laughs> and I, and it's you know for those of us that love animals 
as being equal and not different from but various. Um, it's always a relief for me to meet people like you, to know that there are human beings who really value sentient life with respect, regard, and advancement. So thank you for the work you and others you've worked with have done. Well, why don't we set up for our audience, because there's a difference between two things that have joined, two organizations. You're the senior scientist at Great Ape Trust, and you're the new president of Bonobo Hope. So tell us about the Great Ape Trust and what you all do there. The Great Ape Trust was formed by Ted Townsend in 2004 to be an organization that had all four great ape species and illustrated the cognitive cultural uh, abilities. However, he has decided to pull out his funding very recently, and that organization turned to Bonobo Hope, a new one which I had formed, and... uh, is asking us to help try to fund to be able to keep the bonobos here. So we've just been doing that since about a week before Christmas, and we're we're, we're having an uphill battle, but we hope we will be able to keep this unique family of bonobos together and and to continue the research trajectory that really began with them in uh, 1975 with the importation of Matata, the matriarch, from the Congo for the purpose of determining if bonobos were really chimpanzees or if they were a unique and distinct species. Now, when you say that there's a need to raise funds for the bonobos that are part of your community, share with our audience your own involvement with this. Is it group of seven? Yes. Seven bonobos. How long you have lived among and worked with them, and what is so unique about these seven individual primate beings? Well, in 1975, Matata was imported by the National Academy of Sciences, along with two other bonobos that have now died, Losanjo and Lokalima. And at that time, scientists were still debating whether or not bonobos were different from chimpanzees or whether they were pygmy chimpanzees. And Carl Jirasi, who invented the birth control pill, sponsored... uh, an opportunity to bring these bonobos to the United States. His interest was in the fact that bonobos are sexually receptive throughout their cycle as are human beings. We are the only two ape species that share that particular trait. We also share many, many other traits. And I happened to have a postdoc at Yerke Center at that time and had previously studied chimpanzees at the chimp farm and was given the opportunity to be the first behavioral scientist in captivity to really compare bonobos and chimpanzees. And since that time, Matata has resided with me in one way or another, and she has produced offspring, and their offspring have produced offspring. And we now have seven bonobos that are all related to one another. So during these two decades of rearing and living with and communicating and sharing life with these seven bonobos, you and they have developed a method of communication, which is, I guess, what brought you to Time Magazine and the world's attention and why people go Des Moines, Idaho. How is it possible that this is going on in the middle of Idaho? Well, it's actually Iowa. Iowa. Thank you. Des Moines, Iowa. How is this possible? Even in Iowa. So it wasn't in Idaho after all. It was Iowa. Thank you. So tell me. 
I was going to... brought me here? Yes, please. Well, I actually started out uh, at the University of Oklahoma with Washo, the first chimpanzee to have sort of cracked uh, the boundary between humans and animals. And at that time, there was a huge controversy about whether or not what Washo had was really language or was it rote, memorized behavior, or was it just uh, being able, when she saw something, to, to, to ring a bell and, and, and make a sign. So when she looked at a uh, glasses or a key, could she make the sign for that? That's different than being able to know that that sign or symbol stands for the thing. So it was a, it was a long... Uh, philosophical debate between psychologists from many different persuasions that ran from 1972 when the Gardeners first published up until, I guess you would say, the publication of Conti as one of the one of the most 100 influential animals in the world with a big picture of Conti in Time magazine. Uh, when people finally accepted that what, what was happening here and in this group couldn't be explained by any traditional psychological paradigm. Something really was going on. These beings were changing. They were using language to, rep- to make the world a representational place, to, to convey information to each other about the past, about the future, and about how they thought people should be, people should act. And this puts them in the domain of humanity in a way that other beings had never previously existed. Right. So through your work and your dedication and their relationship with you, sentient life of the bonobos became really apparent. And for those who maybe aren't interested in behavioral psychology and these kinds of things, it was, as you're pointing out, a radical development that has now changed, I guess, the way we have to view all animal cultures eventually, that there is consciousness and that there is method, there's practice, there's taught behavior between the generations and species and interspecies or transspecies communication, as you've seen with these bonobos. So describe for our audience what a typical day in your life among the bonobos is like. I always find that it's in the more normal things that people come close to things they're not familiar with. Well, I'm here 24 hours a day at this point, uh, keeping them happy and healthy. And we talk to each other constantly. Both, I speak English, and they speak a kind of bonobo, which I'm learning to understand. But I'm not very proficient at it, even after all this time. And I can say that it's a it's a constantly humiliating. A, a nice humiliating experience, but it's humiliating in that they understand my English far, far better than I understand either their attempts to emulate my English or their their communications with one another. But I can certainly hear them say things like, come on in, bring it over here, do it right now, we'll have it later. That Most of their expressions are phrases like that. And I can understand those quite well. Uh, But when I can't understand something, we have a printed symbol system, which we refer to as lexigrams, but it's just symbols on a board, on an electronic board or a a paper keyboard. And if they're not getting through to me with their their vocalizations, they'll 
gesture and I'll come over and they'll point to what they are interested in on the keyboard, either to tell me something that's happened or to tell me what they would like to eat or to tell me where it is they would like to go. Well, when you, uh, I, I went online, and I, I want to tell our audience, when they go to www.bonobohope.org, and then it might take them to the Great Ape Trust in it, you show these lexicons and I, uh, these lexigrams. And what I was curious about is, for instance, orange juice is represented by a star, and yes, by a big fat Y, while no looks like an hourglass, meaning, you know, they wouldn't be pictograms that I would think to represent necessarily these words. So how were these pictogram symbols selected, and how do the bonobos know this language of lexigrams? Well, that goes back to the debate between psychologists. Uh, Initially, we didn't want them to look like the item. If, for example, the lexigram for snake looked like snake, they might just be pointing to something that was iconic, like a picture of a snake when I showed them a snake, and they might not understand that it had a representational function. So that's why they were chosen to be quite different. Mm -hmm. For example, the spelling, S-N-A-K-E, doesn't look like a real snake, yet it's something that we use. And the, the word snake doesn't have a sound. It's not onomatopoeia in any way. So, So part of the original debate was, Can they use something that actually represents a real thing in the world but has no iconic or onomatopoeic relationship to that thing that would bring it up in the mind? Right, like like the lexigram for you looks like a green space being. (laughs) You know, there's so many really interesting things. So describe for us how you went about and how the bonobos went about learning these, because from what I understand, they have a vocabulary of about 400 words, which is comparable to two-and-a-half-year-old human. Do they seem to understand that by using those symbols, they can communicate with you in a way that they can't when you fail to understand? I mean, that's sort of what you said to us a little earlier. Yes, they definitely do, and and they also... uh can sometimes pick up English spelling because they see English words around a lot on containers, like they know how Coke is spelled. They know M&M. They know the lexigram for M&M, and they know, you know, the two symbols, Mm M&M. And I was going to say earlier, just tonight, I was walking past Ponzi's little area as he was going to sleep, and Ponzi is older now, and we have to really watch his diet so he doesn't eat too much food. And we had just been given uh, from a local food bank lots of oranges, and he was really, really wanting them tonight. And I I walked past his area, and he was gesturing, 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 and he he used the keyboard to say he wanted some oranges, and he pointed to the cooler that had oranges in them. And I said, Kanda, you can't have any oranges. You're on a diet. And he picked up this bottle that was in his cage. It was a bottle of diet cranberry juice that was empty. And he looked at it very carefully, and he pointed to the word diet on the bottle and then gestured to the cooler. So to tell me that if he couldn't have an orange, he could have this juice because it was diet. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't even know that was a word that he used, and I haven't taught him that word, but he has picked it up. And it's that kind of thing that happens all of the time. If we had taught them in a kind of uh, uh, match-the-sample way or 
you have to say this word in order to make such, such and such happen. It, it wouldn't be real language. It's, it's real language because it's acquired in the same way that a human child acquires language. There's a great deal of uh, listening to others, computation of what others are saying, figuring out how what they're saying is relevant to what's going on at the time. There's a huge computational process that's going on. Why is that going on? Because they love us, they like being with us, they're interested in what we're doing, they want to have that skill. They want to be a part of our social group, and so they listen in, they overhear, they look. In fact, you can't prevent them from learning. It's really fascinating, I, you know, it, and it's so hidden. I mean, maybe in the scientific community this is well-known, and maybe because of Time Magazine's coverage some people became more aware of it, but it seems to me that it's sort of one of those quiet little secrets that, oh, my Lord, we're not alone. Well, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, it is understood and known in the scientific community There's still debate about it, in part because it hasn't been fully replicated. It's difficult to fully replicate it for a number of reasons. One, I have had access to a very, very, very unusual species, Panpaniscus or bonobo. Many people would argue it should be Homo paniscus, not Panpaniscus. And secondly, I'm not a scientist in a white coat. I don't assume that the world is out there and you go find out about it. I assume that I can be a part of the creation of that world. And these bonobos are not like other bonobos. They have they have lived in a very, very different world. And no other ape language scientist has has taken that approach. It well, yeah, is the I- case. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I was just going to say that when you look at the videos on your websites and the Great Ape Trust website, you see one of one of the bonobos making a fire and having roasted marshmallow, and and that there there is a real sense of belonging to you and you to them, so that you aren't really separate, even though you're different species. There isn't really a separation of love understanding, compassion, regard, and and so no wonder you and the results of your work are different than other situations. That's that's absolutely the case. But you see, as a scientist, initially you weren't supposed to feel that way about your subjects. Mm -hmm. You were criticized if you did. You Mm -hmm. you were thought to be not, not objective. So many people didn't want to risk their career by doing that. Right, also, by loving it, by loving what they it, were studying. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. It's, it's remarkable but, but work. The nobles are a bit different than other apes. I have worked with all of the apes, not extensively with gorillas, only a little bit, but I certainly worked extensively with uh, chimpanzees and quite a lot with orangutans. Well, look, we're going to take a little break, and maybe when we come back we can talk about some of those differences because therein lies some of the, um, really the beauty of what you've brought out to the world and what you've brought with the bonobos to, I think, the entire world, to, to the whole trans-species understanding. And I remember when I first talked to Gay Bradshaw and came across that term, I just felt that she had she had encapsulated in one word, trans-species, the, trans-species psychology explicitly, really what those of us of love and heart for the whole planet have been trying to say. And so I've actually begun to use that term in my 
own work as an animal communicator, and I now say I'm a trans-species telepath. And so it's really a gift that you and people like Gay are, are bringing to the entire planet, and I thank you, really, from the bottom of my heart. We're going to be right back on 21st Century Radio. Our guest is Dr. Sue Savage-Rumbaugh. Sue is the senior scientist at Great Ape Trust and president of Bonobo Hope. Bonobo Hope was created to further the work initiated by the Great Ape Trust, a scientific research facility in Des Moines, Iowa, that has been dedicated to exploring the origins and future of culture, language, tools, and intelligence. And if you're just joining us, she's been telling us about her lifelong work with the bonobo species. So among these seven bonobo, you said, before the break, Sue, that there's a difference, and you've had an opportunity to work with other primates. You've worked with orangutans and chimpanzees and others. You say they, they share some things in common, but they also differ from each other. In, in what ways and in what significant ways? Well, I think a lot of people are probably aware of the research that uh, shows that apes can recognize themselves in a mirror. Right. They know that they exist here and that they exist in that reflection and they can stick out their tongue or wave their hand and realize they're causing that distal effect. It's been very difficult to demonstrate a similar behavior in other species, although some people claim to have done it in, clo- in crows and some people now in elephants. But apes are, are really unique in that you don't, have to do much to to have that behavior occur and they will do things like put on hats or put on lipstick and go to see how they look so they have a a a concept that they look a way that they can't feel themselves that somebody else can see and this is something that you gain as a human being by the time you're two or three you begin to think about how other people see you uh, so all, all apes have that concept. It's part of their communication. It's part of their life. And as one gets to know other apes and communicate with them, that whole aspect of I versus you, I, me, what do you think, what do I think, becomes central to the dynamic that you're able to have. It's a, it's a very human kind of experience. But bonobos are different in that one of the reasons that people haven't had the kind of relationship that that you see me have with bonobos is because apes are very big. They're very strong. They have very big teeth. Uh, People have always said, well, when they get big, they're just going to attack you. There's, you know, uh, many people are very concerned about this woman that had her face bitten off by a chimpanzee. And there's the feeling that humans are predictable, humans are understandable, human behavior for the most part can be explained or at least psychoanalytically evaluated. But apes can't. They're unpredictable. Well, as I began this work, I thought if they really have language, why would they be more unpredictable than human beings? And why would they grow up to just suddenly become beasts and become aggressive? That was one of the preoccupations with the work from the time I started. I can say that in working with any species other than bonobos, there is a great deal of aggression that one has to learn how to negotiate and one has to be 
careful. One has to renegotiate your relationship, your you and me and what I'm going to do and what you're going to do and what kind of friends we are. One has to constantly renegotiate that. With bonobos, that's not true. As soon as you've negotiated your relationship with them, it's, it's just like you've done it with a human being, and it lasts for the lifetime. It is as though there is something going on between humans and bonobos that doesn't go on emotionally between humans and the other great apes. And this is always something I haven't been able to understand. I've known it, but I haven't been able to understand it until the last year when when scientific research demonstrated that bonobos have a gene for domestication. No other ape has a gene for domestication. Human beings don't have a gene for domestication. The only organisms that have a gene for domestication are organisms that humans have domesticated in the past. And, and so I read him, finding, go, go ahead. I was just going to my behavioral view of a lifetime that there's something very, very different and unique about the relationship that can exist between humans and bonobos. And strangely enough, the legends in the Congo, we don't know, of course, if they're true, but the legends in the Congo are that bonobos and humans used to live in the forest side by side as brothers, and we only went our separate ways when humans invented fire, and bonobos liked fire. They could make fire, but they didn't want to keep theirs going. They always let theirs go out. That's why it's fascinating that Gandhi likes to make fire, but he does let his fires go out. It was funny that I was going to interrupt you to just ask about that very thing of the Congo mythologies, because in Rwanda, where the Great Ape Trust is operating and where other bonobos are and other um, primates are, that was one of the things, I suppose, that has helped the whole Rwandan culture in their effort to preserve these primates. So there is a very particular shift. You mentioned that the founder of originally of this work that with the bonobos has withdrawn his funding, hence you came forward and have gone forward since Christmas to raise funds from the global community. So talk to us about what it costs to manage this kind of facility for the seven bonobos that live with you and you with them, and what will happen if the funds aren't forthcoming? Well, we're certainly doing our best to take the costs down. We're we're getting food donated. We've already got lots of uh, uh, contractors offering to help us with pro bono services. Um, I think I'll be able to take the budget from 1.4 million per year down to somewhere around 300,000, 350,000, which is a much more reasonable figure. Uh, so we hope to raise funds from people within Des Moines. We already have some local volunteers, and we've also had volunteers from as far away as Canada and Israel coming to help us out because now the, the, the need is understood. So I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to move forward and that we'll have, I actually think, much more uh, interaction with the Des Moines community and much more freedom to convey the message of who we are, what we are, what we can learn, and why it is important for this particular group of bonobos to continue than was the case in the past. That's lovely. I mean, that's just wonderful. You know, sometimes change in leadership um, is frightening in the beginning and then really opens a door for new creative thinking. And as a 
um, person who works in the nonprofit sector a lot, bringing a budget down from 1.4 million to 300 some thousand is a remarkable accomplishment just off the top. So it, it shows, I think it's it's a demonstration that when we care about things, we don't have to give up. We have to alter our approach. So when you look at their recent life in your life, I mean, I imagine this transition has been pretty challenging. Um, how do they react to these kinds of shifts when they recognize that maybe the people around them feel concerned? Well, they do seem to understand what I feel concerned about. There's no doubt about that. And they understand conversations in part such as this one, and they, they listen in. So therefore, I have to be confident in my projections and uh, convey to them a sense of, of happiness about the future. And I, I think that I've done that successfully so far. One of the ways I'm able to, to actually reduce the cost is because I love them so much and, and can be here 24 hours a day, I, I myself don't cost very much money. I don't have to pay myself as much as, you know, I was paid before. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't have to have really a large staff because I have a very good relationship. So I may spend just uh, more time cleaning and feeding and moving things around than I than I previously spent preparing for science or publications, but but eventually I will be back at 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 the opportunity to do that. But they they love to have me full time taking care of them, uh, so so that's really been a good thing. And I've been able to find that I can do in a few hours sometimes things that you know it might have taken four people a day to do, sure. just because they cooperate with me mm-hmm. and it's. It, I have a high degree of efficiency. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier in our discussion was the fact that the bonobos have language. And you also mentioned that language is what we say contributes to moral behavior and, and ethical understanding. So the bonobos, do you recognize that they have a morality that is evidenced differently than perhaps the other primates? Well, that is probably the most important question that you could ask, and it's the most important question I hope to be able to address scientifically in the future. When I began this work, I had no idea that they could learn a language. My my supposition would have probably been if they can, it won't go much beyond a two- or three-year-old. I was wrong, but as I began the work, I also wanted them to always quote the bonobos. I didn't want to turn them into odd little human beings that would not have a society of their own. And because I was fortunate enough to have a bonobo matata that was raised in the Congo and and understood the ways of the, the wild and was very happy to teach them about bonobo morality, bonobo sexuality, bonobo aggression, I left most of their moral instruction about being a bonobo up to her. Since that time, I have decided that perhaps that was a bit hasty on my part. It's almost as though I were to raise a child and give that child language, but no human morality. And if I did that to a group of children, I would have something like Lord of the Flies. Mm -hmm. Now that I understand the full intellectual capability of 
these beings, I'm not really sure that the best thing for them is to understand the law of the jungle unless they're going to live in the jungle. I can say that Matata is a, a wonderful, complex being. She has a kind of morality, but it's not a human-like morality. If anything, I would say it's one for all and all for one, and it would certainly uh, handle an attack by a leopard. But it lacks the kind of uh, self-individuality and reflection that characterizes human society. Mm-hmm. I believe that Matata has a, a kind of a language that I think we will begin to uncover more in the future. But I believe that her language is, is if I could translate it, it would be something like, we think this, we feel that, we want this, we are going here, we are going there, we like you, we don't like you. Matata lacks a differentiation between herself and the offspring that she's raised without human input that is absent. She doesn't have the kind of reflection that Kanti, Paminesha, Yoda, and Pico already have. They have embedded in their consciousness the distinction between I and me. That is also between you and me, but, but every human being has, has an I and a me. We have a bifurcation of consciousness. We can ask ourselves, why did I do that? Or who is the I that did that? And I am convinced that this is the onset of human morality. It is at the very basis of our ability to form human kinds of societies and hold, hold ourselves and other people responsible for the, for the actions which we generate. That's so interesting. So Matata, who is the mother, was brought from the jungle, is in this collective non-differentiation, non-individuation, that it's like a group soul, which is often the way animals are described by the mystery traditions as a group soul, and they don't see things in this sense of separate duality. There's no me and you, it's us, which is really fascinating given that then the younger ones that have been born from her, and I watched one of your videos of Kanzi playing and teaching Tico the baby, that there's obvious that there's a culture, that there's learning patterns, that the adult offers guidance. It's just fascinating. Yes, and so what you're seeing in a bonobo form is really a reflection through a mirror of human thought, human culture, human language. Kanji's mind is actually shaped, formed, and molded by the language of humanity. It's also shaped, formed, and molded by the language of Matata. And Kanji is truly bicultural. When he's with Matata and Aliki and Maisha, her offspring that don't have human language, he moves differently. His facial expressions are different. It's just like someone who maybe was raised in Japan and America. Right. They have different ways of being that extend beyond language. Kanji has those two bifurcations of his of his consciousness. It's just fascinating. Well, look, we're going to take our last break of the hour, and when we come back, we'll look at some of the other, um, I guess, discoveries you've made, as well as the changes that your work with the bonobos have made in you. One of the things I'm always so mindful of is that oftentimes the scientific community thinks they're doing something to something outside themselves, 
when in fact the greatest change that I think comes from any of the work we do in the world is within ourselves. We'll be right back if you've just joined us. I'm Dr. Zoharonymous. Dr. Sue Savage-Rumbauer is our guest. A really great scientist who understands love has everything to do with learning. She is the senior scientist at Great Ape Trust there in Des Moines, Iowa. So we don't have a lot of time left. And I said before the break that I was really curious how your life and love and living and caring for and learning with the bonobo has changed you. Well, it's changed me in profound ways. I think that the human species, unless you have an opportunity to interact with our closest living relatives, bonobos, our other apes, you you feel uh, alone. You don't have a sense of really what you are. You feel totally disconnected from the other beings on the planet. I think that's one of the reasons that people seek out pets like dogs and cats. But, but still, people seek more. That's why there's the SETI project. That's why we're interested in is there another planet like Earth out there. We we want to feel that we are not alone. And the closest living relatives actually are the, the living apes. And among those, the very closest are the bonobos. So I have had a unique opportunity of, of anyone living on the planet. I, I can live with our closest living relatives. I can talk to them every single day. I can, I can understand myself as a human being from a slightly different, it's like looking in a behavioral mirror. And, you know, I think every great religion says what we give out, we get back. But, it, you know, when you think about that and you're very nice to a person, that person isn't always very nice back sometimes. And you really have difficulty as a human being always giving out that which you would hope to get back, as we do unto others, they do unto us. It doesn't always quite seem that way. But I can say that with bonobos, it's a very, very fast behavioral mirror. And if you can be clean and pure and emotionally open constantly without without carrying around the kind of deceit and faith or mask that one needs to wear to be an effective human, if you can drop all of that and just let yourself be yourself, it doesn't really matter whether you're happy or mad. What really matters is that you are you, open, honest, pure, and clean all the time. Then, Then you can walk among bonobos, and what you give out comes immediately back to you. And that's what's changed me. It's changed me deeply, fundamentally, so that I have been able to throw off that mask of the seat that you need to wear to be effective in human society. I've been able to throw it off without necessarily going through, I guess, what one would call the kind of religious rigor that it often takes to do that. I, I've been able to do that by the good fortune of living with bonobos. When you say that they have the potential for tool-making, music, and art, it it arrived in my thought and heart. Do they seem to meditate? I mean, are there times in their life where they seem to be reflecting in the way we might reflect on things of the world? They like sunsets. 
They like to watch the birds fly. They they like to watch insects sometimes. There are examples not only from here but from zoos around the world of bonobos catching birds and helping them out of the enclosure. So I don't think those kinds of things would happen unless they were reflecting on on life. Mm-hmm. And, and in terms of their ability to perceive art and music and to actually create, how does it differ from perhaps the way we might do those things? Well, I have a hypothesis, and that is that the creative part of man is his higher self. It's his consciousness being in contact with with the creative force of the universe. And that as bonobos are exposed not only to language, but to human morality and human consciousness and the idea that there is non-physical causality in the universe, that 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 creative consciousness can flow through bonobos just as it can flow through human beings. We're all we're all packages of consciousness, and we're all constantly sharing that consciousness. And to the extent that we are aware of that and we open ourselves to the flow of the higher consciousness, I, I believe that that's when creativity flourishes. And I think the bonobos have that have that potential if I open them to that kind of, of thinking and that kind of morality. Which, as I said, I didn't do that while I was raising them. What I what I did do was try to understand if they had mythology in a sense. What if you had the idea that a gorilla could appear in the forest or a bunny or a pinky could be a mythological character in their world. And I found out that not only did they have the ability to think of the world in a mythological way, they preferred to think of the world in a mythological way. And they could even invent mythological stories. They could invent characters and ask that those characters go and uh, do something to other bonobos or other people in their in their world, so they have a, a great capacity for imagination. You know, and so that in- is the basis of, of, of art and music. It's the capacity for imagination. We haven't yet gotten fully there, but I think we will in the future. Uh, if you go to Peter Gabriel's new uh, Peter Gabriel's website, you'll see Amanisha and Kanji co-creating, co-composing with Peter Gabriel when he came the visit, which shows they have an untapped capacity in that regard. Well, what you describe when I sit and listen to you, if if I didn't know you were talking about the bonobos with the prejudice that perhaps a human might have towards a primate consciousness, is you're describing a culture of archetypes, that they're still closer to the archetypal consciousness that humans have disembodied from their own life. And and so the mythology is actually a more whole form of perception and collaboration between all species. So it actually sounds like the bonobos have a lot to teach us about things that we've lost that hopefully we're capable of retrieving 
within ourselves when we don't experience life in this duality, that we do see that the myth is the expression of something everybody is part of. I, I do feel that way. I also feel that when, let's say the legends of Wamba are true and that humans and brothers used to live together in the forest and we went our separate ways, that at that point in time, we had something that they left behind and they had something that we left behind. Mm -hmm. And we're each a kind of a hat. And as we come together and really begin to understand each other, humanity becomes a kind of a whole. They're a long-lost brother. You have done a beautiful job with your life. You know, it's not like I can sit and say that to um, people as though I'm judging it. It's an appreciation and a respect and a gladness. And thank you so much, Sue, for your loving work with the Bonobos. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner, And I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And remember, we do need more love in the world.